0: Thank you. Hello, I'm Professor Edith Hall and this is my Gresham Lecture on Hippocrates and Ancient Greek Medicine. Natural science and philosophy emerged in the Greek cities of Anatolia in the early 6th century BC and the same applies to the rapid development of medical science. This was broadly overseen by the Greek god Apollo, whom the Greeks had incorporated into their pantheon from his origins in Western Asia. Apollo's bow and arrows can bring, bring both plague and cure it. In the Iliad, the local priest of Apollo near Troy prays to Apollo to blast the Greeks with plague because Agamemnon has abducted his daughter. He calls on him as God with the silver bow, Smythian Apollo. Now, Smythian means mousey, and the mouse seems to have been an early symbol of medicine, later superseded by the familiar snake boiling around a staff and some scraping tools found in the uh, same area are shaped like a mouse's body they belong to one hygienus, campylios probably a doctor and they look like his medical instruments now the god Apollo had a son named Asclepius or Asclepius who became the first doctor of medicine Apollo entrusted Asclepius in his youth to the wise centaur Chiron to bring up because Chiron was an expert in soothing drugs and the art of healing. Asclepius himself had several children, including the doctors Machaon and Podolirios, who lead some Thessalian Greeks in the Iliad, and Hugieia, or health, the personification of health. Ancient doctors often claimed that they were directly descended from this ancestral line and called themselves sons of Asclepius. And one of them, the most famous of all, was Hippocrates of Kos. And medical professionals still take the oath attributed to him, which begins thus. I swear before my gods, my ancestors, my teachers, my fellow healers and apprentices, and by all the arts and knowledge I was privileged to learn, that I'll stand by these words. I will love those who taught me these arts as I love my parents, and I will offer my skills to the young with the same generosity that they were given to me. I'll soothe the pain of anyone who needs my art. If I don't know how, I'll seek the counsel of my teachers. I'll offer those who suffer all my attention, my science and my love. Never will I betray them or risk their well-being to satisfy my vanity. I will not harm my fellow or put a knife to his flesh if I don't know how. Or give him a herb to soothe his pain, even if he begs for it in anguish, if I might take away his breath. And this resonant oath was preserved along with a group of the more than 60 treatises that have been transmitted under Hippocrates' name in the medieval manuscript tradition. Now this lecture is going to look in detail at Hippocrates' Before saying a few words about Galen, the second most famous ancient Greek doctor, and then concluding with some evidence for Greek medicine as practised much nearer home in Roman Britain. A collection of Hippocrates' sayings, excerpted from his and from some other ancient medical manuscripts, were called his aphorisms. In printed form, they almost became the Bible of Renaissance and early modern medicine. They were numerous beautiful illustrated imprints of his other treatises as well, in Greek or Latin, made available. But nearly a 100 years ago, in 1839, the French philologist and philosopher Émile Littré, made serious study possible for the first time of the entire corpus of texts attributed to Hippocrates. It's called the Corpus Hippocraticum. He completed his 10-volume edition of the manuscripts in 1861. He'd compared all the manuscripts then known and he tried to establish the original Greek of them. By translating them into French and appending incredibly good um, introductory essays, he made them widely accessible and also provided a truly consistent interpretation of terminology. And almost as important, at least in the English-speaking world, was Francis Adams, a Scottish doctor who practised in Bancory, Aberdeenshire, all the way from 1819 to 1861, and who diligently translated many of Hippocrates' works into readable English prose. And they're available easily to read online. Now, some of the original texts were written as early as the second half of the 5th century BC. They included On the Diseases of Women, Prognostics, On Fleshes, Two Books of Epidemics and On Regimen in Acute Diseases. To the early 4th century there probably belonged two more books of epidemics, On the Humours and a whole group of works about surgery called On Fractures, On Joints and On Injuries of the Head. And there was certainly an established school of thought called Hippocratic medicine by the time Plato raped his Phaedrus in the early 4th century, for he reports that Hippocrates said that the nature of the body can't be understood without thinking the nature of the whole, which probably means the whole body and soul unit, or the whole community and the whole universe. Some of the so-called Hippocratic treatises may indeed be by the original Hippocrates himself, but some must have been by one of his students or even by a doctor or doctors of several generations later trained in the same school that he founded. Another group, which focuses on diseases rather than either injuries or gynaecology, seemed to be the products of the Knidos Medical Center, another closely allied group just over on the mainland. They also called themselves Sons of Asclepius. There is a fourth group of Greek medical writings to whom the name Hippocrates was often attached, and that was more philosophical and less practically oriented. But all these groups are unified by the method of rational medicine they exemplify and recommend. They all criticize doctors who think the disease could be caused by divine intervention. They certainly attack superstition, prophets and dream interpreters who try to interfere in medical business. Hippocrates himself was almost certainly a native of the beautiful island of Kos. His works, produced in the second half of the 5th and the very early 4th century, crystallised a long-standing tradition of medical inquiry, shared with that fellow guild of medical experts in Knidos. But Hippocrates' brilliance needs to be understood as a consummation of decades, even centuries, of medical practice and accumulated law. Kos was one of the ancient Dorian colonies sent out from the Peloponnese. In fact, from Epidaurus, the site of the celebrated theatre and cult of Asclepius. The methods of the doctors and of the other Milesian natural scientists like Thales were very similar. All of these men tried to find physical rather than supernatural explanations for natural phenomena whether they're related to geology, weather, disease, meteorology, or injury. The Greeks' rational medicine is particularly impressive if we compare it with the Babylonians' conviction that disease was caused by angry gods and invasive demons and also with the spells and religious incantations that alternate with prescriptions for drugs in most Egyptian medical papyri. But the Greeks did learn a lot from these more ancient cultures. One Egyptian papyrus of the 15th century BC called the Edwin Smith papyrus, after the American who bought it in Luxor in 1862, does display a systematic approach to injuries. It includes description of the presentation of each type of wound, along with appropriate examination procedures, treatments and prognoses. But the issue is only injuries their external cause will usually have been witnessed rather than the much more mysterious diseases that appeared to arise naturally from inside the body and might be felt to require a more religious explanation. Greek doctors did admire Egyptian pharmaceutical skills and they knew that the Persian kings hired expensive physicians from Egypt. But this important source of experience from Egypt was synthesised with the Greeks' inquiring, human centred approach to life's problems and produced this rational, scientific tone and method of Hippocrates and his whole school. An absolutely key concept developed by these medical practitioners was that of likelihood. Given a set of symptoms, they could offer a diagnosis saying that it was probable that a patient had a particular identified condition. Moreover, they could produce and predict what was likely to happen to the patient in the future, which meant delivering a prognosis and course of treatment. Hippocrates firmly believed this was a doctor's duty. And it was about the same time that the Greeks began to use arguments from probability in other contexts, such as legal trials. It was a doctor's absolute duty to use evidence acquired from substantial empirical experience, collated and analysed to know what was likely to happen to a patient. To be able, as Hippocrates wrote, to tell the antecedents, know the present and foretell the future in order to be able to benefit rather than to damage. Here's an example. Those who are constitutionally obese are more likely to die early. Now, the relationship between the Hippocratics and the other intellectuals of Ionia did flow both ways. New archaeological evidence has shown that advanced head surgery was already performed on a 30-year-old woman's injured cranium at Abdera, a colony of Clasaminae, one of the original cities of the Ionian League, by the middle of the 7th century BC. The procedure was successful. She lived for another 20 years. But the discovery of her remains shows that complicated surgical procedure on bones of the skull, including trepanation, which was the removal of a disc of bone to allow the careful extraction of damaging bone splinters, was already in use more than two centuries before the sophisticated Hippocratic Treatise on Head Wounds was written around 400 BC. So even before Thales and other Ionian natural scientists, the science and practice of medicine was much more advanced in Greece than we realised before. The Hippocratic treatises are manuals, very practical ones, dealing with everyday life and everyday reality. They're not works of abstract speculation. And scholars have come to accept that because they focus on inference, evidence and cause and effect, And because their lack of recourse to supernatural explanations is so strong, they must be acknowledged as having played a vital role in the total Ionian intellectual revolution. Aristotle, himself the son of a doctor, who claimed a direct line from Asclepius' son Macaon, was convinced of this cross-fertilisation. So what were Hippocrates' principles? There are three broad principles that underlie all his method. First, people get sick on account of unnatural causes, which can be explained scientifically. This was countered the prevalent idea that people get sick because they've outraged the gods or some malevolent demon has afflicted them or because someone else has cursed them or even cast a spell on them. One Hippocratic treatise illustrates the opposition between such views clearly. It's called On the Sacred Disease, which was the name by custom given to epilepsy Now, this mysterious, frightening condition—the symptoms which can be um, exhibited during epileptic fits—were thought to be, by the ancient Greeks, signs of possession by a divinity. But Hippocratic treatise is determined to refute this superstitious diagnosis. It opens trenchantly: "I do not believe that the sacred disease is actually any more sacred or divine than any other disease. On the contrary, it has specific characteristics and a definite cause." Nevertheless, because it's completely different from other diseases, it's been regarded as a divine visitation by those who, being only human, view it with ignorance and astonishment. The treatise argues that epileptic seizures recur as a result of a blockage of the brain by phlegm. Now, this theory has been replaced today by the notion of electrical signals in the brain becoming scrambled, whether as a result of disease or trauma, but the principle behind the Hippocratic approach remains uncontested. Secondly, the Hippocratics studied anatomy to understand the different parts of the body, but they believed that the health and disease relate to our bodily humours, which must be balanced and proportionate. And this is explained in another treatise called On the Nature of Man, perhaps by Hippocrates' son-in-law, another famous doctor, phlegm, yellow bile, blood and black bile are each connected with a bodily organ and have properties. Phlegm is cold and moist and connected with the brain. Yellow bile is hot, dry and connected with the liver. Blood is hot, moist and connected with the heart. And black bile is cold, dry and connected with the spleen. The doctor needed to restore balance between these four humours, but this was complicated. First, he had to take note of all of a patient's symptoms, her colour, temperature, and the nature of any emissions. And these all helped indicate which humours were out of balance. But this information needed to be recorded repeatedly to trace the daily changes. The doctor also needed to know all about the patient's living conditions, what she ate, her source of income, where she lived only these altogether enabled proper diagnosis, prognosis and courses of treatment. And thirdly, all the Hippocratics believed that nature was its own best healer, a principle stated in Latin as the vix medicatris naturae, diseases are self-limiting. They saw most of the symptoms they recorded as changes in the humours while the body tried to heal itself, discharges, sweating, pus and vomit, were all signs of the body attempting to rid itself of excesses in a humour that had become toxic. The doctor's job was simply to aid this process. Hippocratic doctors were trained to take note of every possible factor, time of year, climate, uh, geographical location, as well as age, gender, habits and diet. All changes were important that needed to be recorded daily whether mood swings in sleep duration, dreams, appetite, thirst, nausea, location and severity of pain, chills, coughing, sneezing, belching, flatulence, convulsions, nosebleeds and absolutely menstrual changes in women. The physical examination required attention to be given to fever, respiration, paralysis and the colour of the limbs, pain on palpitation and breathing stools urine sputum and vomit so what did the treatises actually read like for the most part they're actually deeply impressive as examples of consistent accurate well organized technical writing supported by the principle that if medicine were to achieve the status of a science this is something very important to Hippocrates the findings of prognosis of a doctor with a particular patient needed to be tested and verified by others, i.e. in a process of testing and experimentation. So take the epidemics. Now this records 567 fascinating case histories with the patient's appearance, bodily processes and changes in condition noted daily in a form of shorthand. Here's one example from a set of case studies during a particular plague afflicting the island of Thassos. The wife of Philinus, having been delivered of a daughter, the discharge being natural and other matters going on mildly, on the 14th day after delivery was seized with a fever attended by rigor. She was pained at first in the cardiac region of the stomach and the right hypochondrium, pain in the genital or- organs, lochial. Discharge ceased. Upon the application of a pessary, all these symptoms were alleviated. Pains of the head, neck, and loins remained, though no sleep, extremities cold, thirst, bowels hot, stores scanty, urine thin, and colourless at first. On the sixth, towards nightfall, her senses became disordered but were again restored. On the seventh, she was thirsty. Her evacuations became bilious and high coloured. On the 8th, she had a rigour, acute fever, much spasm and pain, talked much incoherently. On the application of a suppository, rose to stool and passed copious ejections with a bilious flux, no sleep at all. On the ninth, spasms. On the 10th, slightly recovered. On the 11th, slept, had perfect recollection, but then again immediately wandered, passed a large quantity of urine with spasms, It was thick and white, like urine, which has been shaken after a considerable time until it subsided. But it did have no sediment. It resembled that of cattle, as far as I observed. But on the 14th day, spasms over the whole body, talked much, presently became delirious. About the 17th day, she became speechless. On the 20th, she died. Now, more women than men died of this epidemic notes the author but here is a much more cheerful case study where the patient mercifully survived the clasimenian who was lodged by the well of phrydichides was seized with fever he had pain in the head neck and loins from the beginning immediately afterwards deafness no sleep acute fever hypochondria elevated with a swelling but not much distension tongue dry on the fourth towards night he became delirious on the 5th, uneasy. On the 6th, all the symptoms exacerbated. But on the 11th, a slight remission. From the commencement to the 14th day, the alvine discharges were thin, copious and of the colour of water, but well supported. The bowels then became constipated. On the 16th, urine thicker, with a sediment, somewhat better. On the 17th, Urine again thin, swellings about the ears with pain, no sleep, much incoherence. Legs painfully affected. But on the 20th, free of fever, had a crisis, no sweat, perfectly collected. On the 27th, violent pain of the right hip, but it speedily went off. On the 31st, a diarrhoea attended with copious discharge, symptoms of dysentery. Swellings about the ears gone, however on the 40th day had the pain in the right eye, it went away. We can only imagine how brave the doctors who attended these plays victims must have been, and there's no mention at all of personal protective equipment. Hippocrates on congenital defects. Another early treatise shows the Hippocratics made detailed studies of birth defects, such as club foot, which seems to have been quite common. The treatise De Articulis shows that his school knew all the important characteristics of clubfoot, technically labelled today congenital talipes equinovarus (CTEV). Now, this is a musculoskeletal birth defect which occurs about once in a thousand live births. It makes the ankle look as though it's been bent inwards and makes the sufferer appear to walk on the outside ankles or sides of their feet. And it occurs, it occurs at double the rate. In males and females, as Hippocrates seems to have known. Hippocrates treats it as a subspecies of lameness, which is signified by the stem hol. The adjective holos also occurs in Homer, being used both of Thersites, who was lame in one leg, and the god, the lame god, Hephaestus. The Hippocratic author uses the verb kulotein to explain the consequences of such dislocations. The legs are more bandied when the dislocation is outward, but it's nevertheless easier for the possessor of outward-turning club foot to stand on his feet than if the legs are turned inwards. But the individual with congenital club foot, in whom the ankle is naturally present and the leg bones aren't atrophied, is described as very likely to be able to walk. The club footed person is thus distinguished by Hippocrates from someone who's become acutely lame through injury. And later, the author insists that most cases of congenital club foot are remediable unless the declination be very great or when the condition occurs at an advanced period of youth. The best plan is to treat such people as early as possible before the deficiency of the bones of the feet is very great and before there's any great wasting of the, leg, of the flesh of the leg. And there's more than one variety of clubfoot. Most of them are not complete dislocations, but impairments connected with habitual maintenance of the limb in a certain position. Treatment consists of putting pressure on the bones of the leg and feet, so they begin to grow and move into correct alignment. As says Hippocrates, a wax worker molds an object. Pressure's applied by plaster made from wax and resin, compresses, bandages, and soles of soft leather or lead, which are stitched in place, and then an outer shoe or boot of firm lead. The most suitable, says Hippocrates, are those calf-length boots called mud-treaders because they're used for travel on muddy ground, for this kind of boot does not yield to the foot, the foot yields to it. So Hippocrates' condition would have been treated, sorry, so the condition of the person with club foot could have been treated by manipulation, orthotic bandaging and stiff structured footwear functioning as a brace or splint. Gynaecology. Now treatises on obstetrics and female diseases are by far the largest category in the Hippocratic Corpus. On the nature of the woman, on the, disease, on the diseases of women, generation, on the nature of the child and on sterile women were all composed in the early period, although the manuscripts do contain other later works as well, such as the eight-month child and something called superfetation, which means more than one embryo in the womb. Together, these treatises provide a remarkably comprehensive account of female physiology, menstruation, intercourse, conception, contraception pregnancy tests, fetal development, birth, postpartum discharges and complications, uterine discharges, and symptoms shown by women in other female-only diseases. They do include more philosophical works for audiences interested in natural science, but also an enormous number of practical accounts of morbid conditions, therapeutic techniques, and recipes. On sterile women, for example, includes both causes of barrenness, but also pregnancy tests and methods supposed to determine the baby's sex. Diseases of Women, women, Book 2, lists and describes discharges from the womb. And superfetation begins with a discussion of two foetuses in one womb, but is mostly a combination of accounts of different types of difficult birth, which make very painful reading today. They were later developed and advanced by Hippocrates, admirer, the Greek doctor, with the egregious name Sauranus. The treatises on young girls offer a surprising insight into what was diagnosed as hysteria, which actually means womb-itis. This is said to afflict all girls who've begun to menstruate before they're married and aren't married off quickly enough. Their womb wanders around their body, making them delirious. The author explains that its cause is a flow of blood taken to the heart and diaphragm instead of being discharged properly through the uterus as menses. The cure is very simple, marriage, regular sexual intercourse with her husband and pregnancy. The Greeks did not think continuing virginity was at all good for a woman's psychological health also helps to explain why so many Greek tragic plots involve havoc wreaked by women without husbands present at the time. Yet however comical and deeply sexist some of his theories may now seem, Hippocrates did take his profession very seriously and made a huge contribution both to gynaecology and to the professional ethics and standards that are really not dissimilar to those in which doctors are trained today. Besides the requirement to produce detailed medical histories and records during treatment and to do no harm, the Hippocratic physician was expected to maintain very high standards in record-keeping, both of the diagnosis and the recommended treatment. And Hippocrates also used many of the terms that we still use today. Besides symptom and diagnosis, they include therapy, trauma, sepsis, Diabetes, gastritis, enteritis, arthritis, eclampsia, coma, paralysis, mania, and panic attack. So, what was Hippocrates' reputation in later antiquity? Well, his life and work led to the building of the Asclepiaeon, or Sanctuary of Asclepius, of which the gorgeous ruins still survive on Kos in the 4th century. This does not mean that medicine wasn't practised and taught there in Hippocrates' own time. It's in a beautiful sanctuary on a hill with beautiful views of the sea, fresh, healthy air and views across to the Turkish coast. It combined the features of a place to worship Asclepius, areas and buildings in which the sick and injured could be treated and a university for the study of medicine. And a mosaic from the sanctuary depicts Hippocrates himself welcoming the goddess Asclepius to the island, who's represented by a friendly, waving native of Kos on the right. And we're lucky enough to have a little poem, or rather a little verse drama, written in the third century BC, and describing the visits of two women to the sanctuary. It's the fourth mime of Herodas. A woman called Kino, who lives on the island, hosts her friend Coccoli, who's visiting her and has come to visit the temple in order to give thanks for her recovery from sickness. There's also a temple servant in the dialogue who receives her sacrifice. They greet Apollo, Asclepius, Higeia, Podalirios and Macaon. They offer up a big cock to be sacrificed and a dedicatory tablet to be set up by the statue of Higea herself the women admire the beautiful statues, they complain about the crowds and gratefully receive the temple servant's blessing. And it was inspired by this lovely little poem that the 1902 discovery and excavation of the Ascipion were led by a German archaeologist called Rudolf Herzog and the local history buff, a Kos man called Yakovos Zaraftis. And it was at Herodas' time, of course, that Hippocrates' reputation was secured, importantly, at Alexandria, which collected and edited all his works in its famous library. But along with Hippocrates' authentic treatises and those by his immediate successors, a whole new narrative developed in which he appeared as a sort of hero, performing astonishing medical feats. He appears as a hero in numerous artefacts used by doctors or grateful patients from cheap little oil lamps to expensive relief sculptures. His feats were recorded in a series of letters supposedly penned by him and they also appear in many other ancient authors including Soranus's unreliable biography of the predecessor he so admired. The letters known as the Hippocratic Apocrypha consist of 22 documents relating anecdotes in his life. First, Hippocrates was summoned by the Persian king Artaxerxes to avert a plague in the Persian army. And the Persians, of course, were the historic enemy of the Greeks. Artaxerxes had heard that Hippocrates was the most brilliant physician in the world, so he sent an embassy to get him. The ambassadors offered him all the silver and gold he could possibly want. But Hippocrates shook his head and said, no, I have enough food and clothing and shelter, everything else I need in life. I don't want Persian opulence. I will not help those who are enemies of the Greeks. In the ancient world, patriotism beat money and humanist concerns for other ethnic groups, hands down. And in 1792, the French artist Giraudet painted the scene in which Hippocrates refused the gifts of the king. In the picture, the Persians around Hippocrates show different expressions as the great doctor, as the great doctor, refuses to help them. They're miserable, astonished, or furious, and Hippocrates' foot is pushing away the pile of money on the floor. In the second exploit, Hippocrates is summoned by the Senate of the Greeks of Abdera to cure the apparent madness of the philosopher and natural scientist who lived there, Democritus. Now, Democritus' main symptom is helpless laughter at everything, including funerals, and at everyone, including revered politicians with high opinions of themselves. But Hippocrates diagnoses Democritus as both sane and, in fact, very wise. It's his desire for solitude and serenity which make him discriminate himself from ordinary people. And one of the best ways to do that was to laugh at the folly of human existence these two intellectuals enter a correspondence in which they discuss moral and medical aspects of madness and the relationship between the noble outsider figure and his ordinary fellow men and it's a discussion that points towards um, numerous recurrent themes later in the history of ideas Hippocrates stands out as the philanthropist Democritus as a misanthropist even if a sane and clever one And in the third story, Hippocrates is supposed to have saved the Greeks from plagues and pandemics, including the great plague of Athens early in the Peloponnesian War, described in great detail by Thucydides, who recovered from it, and in which Pericles, the statesman, died. Hippocrates is said to have kindled great fires in the streets of Athens to turn the air hot and dry and fumigate it, make it inimical to the plague. Um, that's instead of cold moist and hospitable to the plague there was even a document purporting to be a decree of the Athenians honoring Hippocrates for his great goodwill in bringing deliverance to the Hellenes when as an epidemic was coming down from the land of the barbarians he dispatched his own students to various regions and ordered what treatments it was necessary to escape the uncommon epidemic without fail. He showed how the medicinal art of Apollo, handed down to the Hellenes, saves their sick. The second most important ancient Greek doctor, Galen. Galen lived from around 129 to around 200 AD, and his career offers a vivid route into Roman imperial culture. He was born into a well-to-do Greek family in Pergamon, always one of the Greek cities of Asia most accommodating to Rome. The son of an architect, he was given a superb education and his career was chosen after his father had a dream in which the healing god Asclepius ordered him to make his son study medicine. Galen did not get along with his mother. Her hot temper uh, was not shared by the dispassionate young intellectual, so he tells us. As soon as his father died, when he was only 19, he took to travelling and studying abroad. He spent four years studying medicine in Alexandria and read every previous medical writer he could lay his hands on. His first big career break came in 157. He was appointed physician to the gladiators owned by the high priest of Asia back at home in Pergamon. The gladiators were required to perform in the imperial cult and Galen was to refine his understanding of anatomy and injuries while treating them. And he'd won the job against stiff competition by performing operations publicly on a monkey. He made an incision in its stomach to reveal the intestines and challenged the other physicians to replace them and insert the necessary sutures. None of them could. Galen recalls this in a ceremonial first-person plural. We ourselves then treated the ape, displaying our skill, manual training and dexterity furthermore we deliberately severed many large veins thus allowing the blood to run freely and we called upon the elders of the physicians to provide treatment but they had nothing to offer we then provided treatment making it clear to the intellectuals present that physicians who possess skills like mine should be the ones in charge of the wounded from pergamon he went to rome where he eventually settled working for the emperor's marcus aurelius no less and then His son Commodus and Septimius Severus, the top medical job in the Roman Empire. Now, this enterprising Greek doctor turned curing patients into a competitive performance. On one occasion, he was summoned to treat a slave with wounds in the chest, which no other doctor had been able to heal. Galen excised the breastbone and, in a spectacular procedure, exposed the heart, after which the patient recovered. When another physician denied that the kidneys were involved in the excretion of urine, Galen publicly enacted a vivisection on a male animal, which involved tying up its kidneys and penis, blowing into its bladder and puncturing the tube which connected it to the bladder, thus releasing a squirt of urine. He had many fans who came to watch the shows. So successful a doctor and self-promoter was Galen that he excited envy in his rivals. They spread rumours that he was a charlatan, and eventually he felt compelled to undergo a public scrutiny of his anatomical theories, at the public venue of the Temple of Peace. Other doctors, for a whole week, challenged him to defend his findings. He refuted them with his sceptical, He refuted them with his scalpel, and practised demonstrations on patients and cadavers of animals. These were inevitably bloody and theatrical and he spectacularly pulled off the defence of his reputation but the experience made him ever more critical of all the other doctors. He regarded them as either incompetent or avaricious and always as unscientific. His major contributions were to a systematic method of diagnosis, identification and cause of illness, symptoms and prognosis described and reasoned in his gargantuan 14 book treatise on therapeutic method which is still being translated but he also advanced understanding of anatomy and diagnosis by means of the pulse on which he wrote a great deal his pulse readings were so sophisticated that he prided himself on one case justice's wife from her pulse he'd been able to diagnose not physical illness but infatuation with a ballet dancer named Pylades Never marrying or fathering a child, he was a workaholic. Despite inheriting a personal fortune, he was almost unbelievably prolific, producing at least 500 treatises, of which more than 80 survive. And in fact, they make up more than half of the entire corpus of ancient Greek medical writing and a substantial proportion of all the ancient Greek prose we can read. Galen brought the long-standing tradition of Greek rational medicine to an unprecedented level. He also personally modelled many ideas about medicine in both the Arab and Western worlds. His works were translated into Arabic in the ninth century, thence into Latin, and in Latin translation, several of them constituted cortex on the basic European medical curriculum by the late 13th century. And once the Greek manuscripts began to appear in the West in the 15th and 16th centuries, a far more detailed picture of this incomparable doctor's methods could be inferred from a comparative study of all the textual traditions. But in conclusion, let's bring the story home. Let's look at the fascinating evidence that the Romans brought Greek doctors with them when they were ruling Britain. Inscriptions honouring the healing god, Asclepius or Esculapius in Greek rather than Latin have been found in several places in the north of England, including Lanchester near Durham and Maryport in Cumbria. At Chester, near what is now the telephone exchange, a doctor named Hermogenes once dedicated a votive offering in beautifully shaped Greek lettering of the early 2nd century AD. It reads... Homogenes, the physician, Iatros, has set up this altar to the all-powerful preservers. Sotersen, upermenersen. That means Asclepius and his companion goddess and daughter, Hygieia. Perhaps, perhaps Homogenes was official doctor to the 20th Roman Legion, legendary legion, who built and resided in the Chester camp. But it so happens that the doctor who looked after the dying emperor Hadrian himself was called Hermogenes. This famous Greek medic had made had very good credentials because he was trained in the medical school of the peerless anatomist Erisistratos. Erisistratos who came from Kos, the island where Hippocrates had practiced, was Aristotle's grandson no less and Cassius Dio tells us that when Hadrian was dying slowly from dropsy and of course Hadrian spent a lot of time in Britain Hermogenes helpfully pointed out to him the very place on his chest which if an attendant struck a blow would allow him to die fast and painlessly in the event Hadrian couldn't persuade anyone to dare to do that he ended up eating and drinking himself to extinction And my favourite exhibit in the Museum of London is a pewter amulet with a magic spell designed to ward off plague inscribed in ancient Greek by a man called Demetrius, And heel of walnuts suspended from his neck. It was found on the north side of the Thames at the point where the ancient underground river, the Walbrook, which is still there, disgorged at Cannon Street Station. And 30 precious lines of Greek begin with these magical spell words. Abra, Barbasol, Barbasoch, Barbasoth, Ouleio, Anthimorphi. Demetrius continues to describe the plague in vivid adjectives: cacophonous, carried by the air, slashing from afar, manslaying, agony intruding, depressing, flesh-eating, liquefying, deep in the veins. He invokes four deities to protect him from this terrible plague three mysterious figures who often appear in ancient spells and whose name ultimately derived from Hebrew which was often felt to be a magical language. Ior, Sabaoth and Abrasax and of course the ancient Greek doctor Phoebus Apollo of the Onshonaya Archer. Apollo is prayed to about plagues everywhere in ancient Greek literature including the Iliad as we saw and in Sophocles Oedipus. Demetrius was probably trying to protect himself from the Antonine smallpox-like plague, a terrible disease. It began in 165 AD during the reign of Marcus Aurelius and it devastated Roman legions across the entire empire. The form of Demetrius's letters and some spellings suggest either that he was bilingual in Greek and Latin, which was common enough, or even that Latin was his first language, and he was writing in exotic sounding Greek because he believed it possessed magical powers. In two final transnational twists, the hexameter line of verse invoking Apollo is a variant on another anti-plague spell also recorded in an ancient Greek text by the Syrian Lucian. Lucian says the spell was manufactured at the time of the Antonine Plague by a black sea charlatan called Alexander, quack doctor. He invented a fraudulent new avatar, an actual snake, of Apollo's doctor son Asclepius. And he called his new oracular servant Glycon, carried it around everywhere and attributed prophetic statements to him and earned quite a lot of money. But back here in Londinium, we sadly do not know whether Demetrius's internationally known spell, fraudulent or not, proved effective. We don't know if he survived. But we're all facing a latter-day plague. We should obviously prioritise the rational medical advice of government scientists, resulting, we hope, from the empirical study of patients and collation and analysis of evidence. But there is little harm in supplementing this with Demetrius's resonant ancient Greek spell. So come on, all together now, it's on the PowerPoint. Abrai, barbasor, barbasoch, barbasoth, eu elio